BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold Coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. The Bowery Boys episode 191, The Great Fire of 1776. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we are bringing you an oft-forgotten chapter in the history of the American Revolution, the story of the Great Fire of 1776, a blaze that was mysteriously set and destroyed one-fourth of the city's buildings. Although in telling this story, we're going to be talking about much more than just a fire that lasted one night, because you can't really understand the story of the Great Fire without talking about New York and the Revolutionary War. Well, frankly, it's just our excuse to talk about the Revolutionary War, as we're all in this <laughs> Hamilton the Musical spirit, Yeah, I was right? going to say, I think it's just your excuse to talk about Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. Yes, that's true. But this is also a story about New York at its most fragile you know, within just a short few weeks in 1776, the character of the city itself changed drastically. Because at that point in 1776, the city had been controlled by the British for more than 110 years. New York in the 1770s was a bit insecure. It was filled with loyalist residents and also patriots who very much wanted to bring the battle of the revolution into the city streets. They would bring it to the streets and a whole lot more. Finally, this story, the sort of subplot of this story, if you will, will be about the great legendary young patriot Nathan Hale. Because people may not realize this, but his story, or rather his tragic fate, is actually intertwined with the story of the Great Fire itself. So join us as we battle through the Great Fire of 1776. In 1776, Nathan Hale was 21 years old. He was a graduate of Yale University. He was an energetic, handsome guy, although he had a scar on his face from a powder burn that had happened in his teenage years. He became a school teacher, but quickly enlisted in Washington's Continental Army and was extremely devoted to the cause of American freedom. In fact, his fate would be caught up and eventually determined by the events, Tom, that we are about to describe specifically the events that occur after midnight on September 21st. 
Wow, that's a very mysterious opening, Greg. What what happens to Mr. Hale? I will reveal his fate a little bit later in the story because it really is caught up in some of the actions that we're about to talk about that okay. happened in September of 1776. But this is a huge topic, Tom. Yes, it and is. And you have been given this task of situation here <laughs> uh, to set us up for the American Revolutionary War, which I think some people have heard about. Right. So you'd like me to just sort of very briefly situate us, <laughs> yes. bringing us up to speed on sort of the colonies and <laughs> what is, their what dis- is it? disaffection sure. up until September of 76. What is it? Who was Washington? You know, the major <laughs> players here in f- 10 minutes. Okay. Well, so we're going to get to... New York, and more specifically to the Battle of Long Island, otherwise known as the Battle of Brooklyn Heights or Battle of Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. really soon, because that's key in this whole story. But let's fall back because the Battle of Brooklyn happens in August of 1776, and by that point, a lot had already happened. Yes, a lot has transpired by that time. So let's pull back just a little bit, okay? Before there was actually even a revolutionary war, before independence had been declared by the Americans in July 1776, there had already been years of struggle between the North American colonies and Great Britain. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reasons for the grief, you know, there are a lot of reasons that we don't have time to get into, but a big one was centered around the fact that Parliament back in London had passed the Stamp Act in 1765, which meant that the North American British colonies were paying taxes on all kinds of transactions, 43 different kinds of transactions, including certificates and diplomas, marriage licenses and such. (laughs) Well, it affected people in all different strata of society here. It wasn't just a, you know, a rich man's tax or a poor man's tax. I mean, it enraged a lot of people. Well, and a lot of people in the various British colonies, but especially in New York, because New York was a colony built upon commerce. There was so much trade happening here, so much paperwork happening, so many certificates, Greg, that needed (laughs) to be issued. And all of those suddenly were getting taxed. And it wasn't just the fact that they were taxed, but there was no representation in Parliament for these colonies. They couldn't speak up. So, right. They had no voice in this matter. So this is this was the complaint that there was taxation without representation. And we're in the 1760s. Remember that New York at this point had been a British colony for 100 years. Exactly 100, yes. Right, since 1664. And at this point, the city, although it had only, quote-unquote, 20,000 or so inhabitants, it was still a really major colony in terms of size and the most important port at this period. So the Stamp Act is passed to the consternation of a great many people in the colony and throughout the other colonies. Right. And in New York, of course, they protest. The day before it was to go into effect on November 1st, 1765, protesters were in ticked off merchants uh, gathered to protest on the city commons. And then they marched on down to the official residence at Bowling Green and burned an effigy of the royal governor at the time. So this started, the spark, I guess, was, burnt, <laughs> was started with this effigy. Right. And this worked, actually, part Parliament thought it over and decided to repeal the Stamp Act. And New York was so grateful that six years later, they erected a statue of King George III in Bowling Green on his horse, 
to thank them. <laughs> but in the meantime, Parliament continued to pass other taxes. So how did the colonists then react? They burned an effigy, and now how do they, how do they react? <laughs> well, well, they took it a step further. They organized uh, militia groups and resistance groups in opposition to the British forces in the colonies in the 1760s and the early 1770s, including, famously, the resistance group the Sons of Liberty, which was semi-secretive, and we'll get to that mm-hmm. in a second. You know, one of the newly arrived immigrants to the city in June of 1773 quickly became a member and a powerful force of the Sons of Liberty, a young man named Alexander Hamilton. From the Caribbean, right? That's right. And he would enroll at King's College and become very involved in these protests, writing leaflets that would be distributed and quickly become one of the leaders. As a teenager. A late teenager. Late teenager. But still a teenager. Yeah. And just to put this in perspective, just a couple months after Hamilton arrived here, in December of 1773... Up in Boston, protesters, mostly from the Sons of Liberty's group, and some who were dressed as Native Americans, prevented ships from unloading their stocks of tea, boarded the ships, and dumped these crates of teas off overboard into Boston Harbor. And this event is popularly referred to today as the Boston Tea Party. And this was the largest inciting incident thus far, which, of course, escalated the situation severely. And, of course... It didn't do anything to help the relationship between Great Britain and her colonies. Great Britain would punish Massachusetts in particular and continue to restrict their ability to self-govern. So in response, Massachusetts, along with the other colonies, would form a sort of shadow government, their own Mm. Congress that would meet. That would be the Continental Congress. The colonies would send delegates off to this Congress, and they would do business and try to figure out the best way forward. But let's not simplify things and just assume that the colonists all wanted to have independent rule and that they were all unanimously against uh, Great Britain. That wasn't the case at all, especially not in New York. The city was divided into those who considered themselves patriots and were sort of whipped up in this sort of fervor and loyalists who were loyal to the crown. Some of the biggest landowners in New York, like, say, James DeLancey, was an ardent loyalist. Well, it behooved them, right? Because they had property. And it was the same thing for big business owners at the time as well. They wanted stability. They didn't want to rock the boat. Their fortunes and their business depended on a stable tied, marketplace. Right, tied to those connections to England. And England had made New York this giant base. And you've got all these ships coming up and down the Hudson. This was all good for business. They didn't want to bite the hand that was feeding them, feeding them well. And a lot of them were from England. Those in the wealthier classes did have deeper connections back to the motherland uh, versus some of the people who had lived in New York and who were were students, for instance, or those who were like not as wealthy, which is why a lot of the Sons of Liberty tended to be younger, intellectual, and from the working class. Sounds pretty tense here. So what year are we now in for the next anecdote? Well, so (laughs) Hamilton got here in June of 73, right? The Boston Tea Party is in December of 73. And in September of 74, a year later, the First Continental Congress met. So you can feel sort of the drumbeat of Mm -hmm. war at work here. And it would be on April 19th of 1775 that the first conflict would actually break out at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, between uh, the Massachusetts militia and British troops. Now, 
independence has not been declared. So this is the first battle in the conflict that would be the Revolutionary War. And when the news would reach New York a few, a few days later on April 23rd, the Patriots were absolutely delighted, right? This is like their dream that finally this was happening, that, that finally people were rising up against the British forces. They could unite behind this event. Right. So they united and they celebrated uh, with fireworks and an impromptu parade down Broadway. And the Continental Congress would organize the militias together, the various colonial militias, into the Continental Army and put at its head General George Washington. Who had been a Virginia farmer. Virginia farmer, but then he had successfully led campaigns in the French Indian War. in, In the French and Indian War, right. So by 1775, we have George Washington and the Continental Army newly formed. Right. And so where are they at right now in the Northeast? Well, for most of a year until early 1776, the Continental Army was up surrounding the British Army, trapping them in Boston, so in they the were so-called mostly, Siege of Boston. Okay, so they were in Massachusetts, mostly. But meanwhile, down in New York, people were really kind of uneasy because, okay, fine, you had the British forces up in Boston, but this still didn't look good. This is going to get ugly. And chances were that it was going to head to New York, and so people either celebrated if they were a patriot, but a lot of people took off if they could, right? You sent the wife and the kids off to some country house someplace or to something safe inland. Anticipating something horrible was going to happen to the other big port city here. It seemed obvious to everybody that this conflict was going to be coming down to New York. Mm -hmm. So people took off, or loyalists even returned to Great Britain. They just said, okay, that was fun. We're out of (laughs) here. And they often left boarding up their houses, their businesses. They just took off. So New York really emptied out. It shrank in 1775 and 1776 from 25,000 inhabitants at this point down to 5,000. Wow, I didn't realize it it, uh, shrank in population, which meant a lot of buildings that were abandoned. Right. The city was already experiencing some monumental changes here, and the war hadn't even come to New York yet. Not yet. But here we are, Greg. (laughs) It's March of 1776, and the British depart from Boston. They take off, sail away. They actually go up to Nova Scotia in Canada to regroup. But General Washington knew that they would be back, and he had a pretty good idea where they were going. So he sent his army down to New York to start to prepare the city and and to build defenses. And so you had soldiers and anybody else who could give a hand here, anybody who was left in town, digging trenches in the streets and positioning artillery all over the place. You had troops training up and down the streets in every square that they could find, pitching tents, sleeping in abandoned buildings and stores. New York became a sort of army barracks and army base. There were munitions already in the battery by this time, waiting. I mean, what a frightening thought to sort of sit there and every night think to yourself, is this the night that we're going to be attacked, knowing it's going to happen? Right. Always kind of keeping a watchful, apprehensive eye on the harbor. Well, on June 29th, 1776, the British made a move. They needed a base to wage their attacks, so they landed on Staten Island. Now, we're not just talking about a ship pulling up to Staten Island and a couple hundred guys disembarking. We're talking about something bigger than that. The British aim to overwhelm the colonists with their size and force. 
Overnight, 100 warships arrived in New York Harbor, and 400 more vessels would join them within the course of the week. And essentially, they took over Staten Island, or as they called it, Richmond. Right. How many troops was that then? On these 500 vessels, there were 32,000 troops and 10,000 sailors. That is a lot of people. Not just British troops, but Hessians as well, right? German mercenary soldiers. Hired for the occasion. And Staten Island was a natural place to choose because from there they could actually block access to uh, New York Harbor. So these British ships started sailing in on June 29th. Okay, you have to imagine this calendar. I'm sorry to keep throwing out (laughs) dates here. But June 29th, 1776. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, okay... Oh, right. They're Things getting, are happening. They're getting together down there, right? That's to do, right. They're cooking something up, I believe. Right. <laughs> Leaders of the North American colonies were, were meeting in Philadelphia to vote on the rather important and urgent matter of independence. Congress would approve the declaration on July 4th, although the news wouldn't get to New York until July 9th. Obviously, patriots were jubilant and raced down to Bowling Green. And remember that statue that they put up of King George III? Well, that came tumbling down. They, they, they pulled that baby right down and they melted it down into bullets. 42,000 of them. As legend has it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if anybody really counted. If you'd like to see a little bit of that statue, the New York Historical Society actually has the tail of the horse. Of course, you know, the end of right. the horse that the King end George of King rode George on. Yes. The third. So the British are all assembled here on Richmond, on Staten Island, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're in July of 1776. Right. But it wouldn't actually be until the next month, on August 22nd, when General Howe of the British forces would set sail across the Narrows and into Gravesend Bay, which was five miles south of what was then the village of Brooklyn. And is today's Gravesend neighborhood next to Coney Island. Right, not very far at all. Too bad there were no amusement parks to distract the British at this time, unfortunately. They did stop for Nathan's hot dogs. (laughs) Just a quick stop at Nathan's, and then they pushed on. Washington saw what was happening. He saw the British advance and didn't know what to do. He had his troops in Manhattan. So he split his forces and sent thousands of them to the Brooklyn side to push back the forces, if at all possible, and to protect New York or to prevent them from attacking New York from Brooklyn Heights, because from there they could have also shot artillery at the Mm -hmm. city. Well, four days later, on August 26, Washington had moved 7,000 troops to around today's Gowanus and Park Slope neighborhood. And by that point, Howe had moved up and was approaching Washington's forces, but he played a little trick. He actually split up his forces, and he brought some from around the back, surprising Washington's troops and trapping them. Down old Jamaica Road. Basically, in in the area of today's Prospect Park and Park Slope neighborhood, and this resulted in a huge defeat, 2,000 deaths uh, for the Continental Army, a huge defeat for Washington, and forced him to pull his troops way back, basically, to the area around today's Brooklyn Heights. And just three days later, on the night of August 29th, Washington realized that he could no longer hold his army or defend Brooklyn Heights from the advancing British uh, troops, which far outnumbered him and had far more uh, military capacities than his sort of ragtag Continental Army. And so he pulled off quite a feat. That day, he prepared his troops for a night attack 
But he had another plan following the advice that he'd received from Thomas Mifflin, who was in charge of the Pennsylvania troops. Mifflin had advised him that they retreat to Manhattan. But how do you move thousands of troops to Manhattan and get away with it as you've got British troops actually breathing down your your coats. What's well, every available floating device that you could find? That's right. And you wait until it's the dark of night. So that night at about 11 o'clock, he mobilized his troops by moonlight silently. This would have been amazing to have witnessed, seeing thousands of Continental Army troops moving silently onto boats and skiffs and ferries and moving across, without a noise, the East River. He moved the entire force across the East River while keeping some soldiers in place on the Brooklyn side, lighting campfires and things, kind of pretending like nothing's going on here, folks. But meanwhile, (laughs) thousands of men are actually crossing into Manhattan. It took a little bit longer than he anticipated. 9,000 troops moving across, plus their supplies and equipment, the whole shebang, so that by daybreak, as the sun was starting to come up, the boats were still ferrying back and forth these soldiers, Fortunately, it was a foggy morning. There was fog sort of laying low and thick around the boats. Washington himself was the last person on a boat at about 7 a.m. as he bid adieu to the Brooklyn side and sailed across for Manhattan, just as the British were really discovering what had happened right under their noses. So then for the next couple weeks here, where were Washington's troops? Where was Washington? Well, after pulling off that sort of mic drop... Well, it became pretty obvious to him quickly that his troops were exhausted and in bad shape and that they were vastly outnumbered and that there was no way that they could really effectively defend Manhattan at that point. So he basically thought that he had just gotten away with at least preserving what was left of the Continental Army at that point. And over the course of the next two weeks, they would sort of move farther north up Manhattan Island, away from the city, because remember, the city at this point is in, is in the southern end of, of the island. So they, were, so they weren't staying in the city. They were moving farther up Manhattan Island. They, but they were essentially abandoning New York in terms of they weren't able to defend it properly. It's interesting that Washington, during this two-week period, these first two weeks of September, he wrote to Congress and he asked them for permission to torch the city, to burn down the city in order to make it less commodious to the enemy, To especially in light of the fact that winter was fast approaching. They have this perfect city to use as an army base. So why not torch the thing on their way out of town? And John Jay, a New Yorker and patriot, was for the idea. But Congress rejected the idea. Well, they, I, can, I can understand why they rejected that, although this makes a little good foreshadowing here for what is to, about to occur. You see a flicker of where yes. this is going. Mm-hmm. But don't forget that they thought that Washington would be coming back in to take over New York. So they, they didn't want him to do any damage to the city that he would hopefully soon re, recapture. Well, on September 15th, 1776, the British did finally arrive onto Manhattan. They actually landed around the area of Kipps Bay, which is on the East River, around 34th, 38th Street, around that Mm -hmm. particular area. Washington's men, of course, were quickly fleeing New York. They hadn't actually all fled at this time, but they were all mostly going along the west side. So you can really imagine the drama. If you were had a bird's eye view here of right. the forces coming in from the east and all of these troops on the west side fleeing, right? Mm. 
General Howe ordered the troops to actually stop on a hill there, which happened to be Murray's Hill, um, uh-huh. owned by the uh, Murray family. The Inklenberg was the name of the mansion there. Now, there are, of course, great legends about how Mary Lindley Murray and her daughters uh, may have delayed the troops, but... The British troops. They were... um, Yes. They were wooed by their feminine charms, as the story goes. Who wouldn't be wooed (laughs) at Inklenburg? (laughs) Now... The next day, September 16th, 1776. Now, keep in mind, just like visualize, because we think of all of Manhattan as being New York, but it's not. It's really all below today's Canal Street, around Collect Pond, right? Washington, by that time, had escaped up all the way to the area that we would call Washington Heights today. It's named it after wasn't him today. probably <laughs> called Washington Heights at the time. Unless it was another Washington, but there wasn't. He went to a house as a uh, it was a, on a very high hill for his sort of temporary headquarters. That was Mount Morris. It was owned by a fleeing loyalist named Roger Morris. Later, if the house would be owned by Stephen and Elijah Jumel. This is, of course, the Morris Jumel Mansion, which you can visit to this day. Actually. And absolutely should. Among one of the last groups of Continental Army soldiers that had been stationed, like that very morning, was a, a wet, damp group of soldiers led by young Alexander Hamilton. He had been stationed on a little battlement at around Collect Pond, uh, one that was called Bunker Hill, nicknamed after the famous battle. <clears throat> wow, so he stayed in the city. Yes, up until the very end, actually. I mean, you know, he was a brave guy. Now, later that morning, Washington sent out his scouting party, known as the Knowlton Rangers, and led by Colonel Thomas Knowlton. Now, they were considered the first spy outfit in American history. One of Knowlton's Rangers was his captain, a young man named Nathan Hale. And Nathan Hale volunteered for a secret mission to go into British-occupied territory. I'll get to him in a second. Now, Knowlton and his rangers met a group of British soldiers here along the, in the neighborhood of Manhattanville. Today, it was, an, it was a, a valley called the Hollow Way, around 125th Street on the west side. Okay. In the Morningside Heights area? Yeah. Uh, so, in, in, yeah, in fact, in a buckwheat field at 120th and Broadway, I believe wow. you may know that corner... And there was a huge clash there between Knowlton and these British troops. Knowlton was killed in the field. Soon it was all swarming with thousands of troops. But because of the topography and because Washington and his troops had a little bit of the upper hand, and also they were kind of enraged by the British braggadocio because they were blowing these fox horns and uh, Washington and his men got quite cross because they were they were like we're not just being hunted down so because of all of these different factors the Continental Army was actually able to hold the British back just long enough for Washington to recall everyone so after all of these defeats I mean this was a little bit of a victory you know, hmm. so so the battles continued even in Manhattan and Upper Manhattan. Yeah, this was actually called the Battle of Harlem Heights, and that was on September sixteenth, seventeen seventy six. Now, while all that was going on, while his former commander had been slaughtered in a field, Nathan Hale had slipped into a disguise. 
a disguise of an unemployed school teacher because he had been a schoolmaster back in Massachusetts. So he was back in a disguise. So I'm imagining kind of a slightly worn cardigan sweater. <laughs> Lots of pencils. Well, I mean, I, I guess he just took off his soldier's uniform and looked like a civilian. That was more the, the disguise here. Okay. So he had been sent on the mission before the British landed at Kipps Bay. Oh, because there were two weeks where the, yeah. the Continental mm-hmm. Army was sort of, they had full reign of Manhattan. Yeah. Yes, so he had been sent off, but he was actually at this time, we believe, because we don't quite know, um, that he was actually back in New York at this time. And it was that location of where he might have been, which would kind of seal his fate. Now, New York, by this time, the city, was swarming with British, taking over the, quote, many fair houses of the loyalists who had fled. And of course, as you mentioned, there were lots of abandoned homes. Imagine this weird sensation of British soldiers coming into a city that was, you know, for commerce and where people were living, but it was filled with all these abandoned fortifications. But confusing, because the city had been a British colony for the previous 112 years, so there would be loyalists. They had lots of allies, but then you even had a lot of people who were just indifferent. They were like, well, I'm glad you're not blowing up our, our establishments here, right? Right, because the residents had been afraid that the worst would happen, mm-hmm. that the whole city would be laid to ruin. But it doesn't get easier for those who remain, because the British immediately order martial law from the day they actually occupy it here to all the way into 1783. Martial law was declared in the streets of New York. So that means no civil government and all posts like mayor and everything. Like There were no elections. Everything was assigned by the British military. Imagine if you're just working in New York City. You know, so much of the population had fled, but there's still you still have work to do. Like you still may work on the docks. You may be a shop owner. Um, You may own a tavern. If you are a certain kind of person, say on September 20th, 1776, you may go down to a quote unquote low groggery, a place of quote, men and women of a bad character, a place called the Fighting Cox Tavern. It was at Whitehall Slip. So Whitehall Street down. It's basically so next to the Battery, right? Just yeah. sort of east of the Battery, yes. Battery Park. Staten Island Ferry, if you can just imagine where that is. And mm-hmm. just it's filled out because of landfill. But just, just you can just imagine. I mean, the Whitehall Street still exists. Right. <clears throat> fighting Cox Tavern. There, I'm sure cockfighting did ex- exist. I mean, it was in other places. It was a popular activity. And, but there were even many British pubs at this time called the Fighting Cox Tavern. But something disastrous would originate here after midnight on September 21st, 1776. So between midnight and one in the morning. You know, that's the golden hour if you're out drinking at a bar, right? Mm. I read in a later history that from 1896, a description, quote, It is said that the night being chilly, the half-drunken beings brought in some boards, rails, and kindled the ends in a large, old-fashioned fireplace. The fire creeping along the dry ember soon communicated with the floor. So the Fighting Cock's Tavern was on fire. New York would soon be at risk. Now, Tom, I'm going to read a list of buildings that we've spoken about in prior shows that would be existing at this time. Trinity Church at Broadway and Wall Street, Federal Hall, which was City Hall back then, Franz's Tavern, and St. Paul's Chapel at Broadway and Ann. One of these buildings will not survive the Great Fire of 1776. We'll get an answer to that burning question after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So Greg, you had left us at the Fighting Cox Tavern on Friday night. It was September 20th, but it was past midnight. So mm-hmm. it was really the early morning of A September Saturday, 21st, yeah. mm-hmm. Saturday. And aside from the people in this tavern and other taverns, for the most part, the city's pretty quiet and people are sleeping. According to the book New York at War by Stephen Jaffe, quote, John Joseph Henry, an American prisoner of war aboard the HMS Pearl, some four miles distant from the city, noticed, quote, a most beautiful and luminous but baleful sight, seemingly the size of the flame of a candle to the east of the battery and near the wharf. It seemed like the size of a candle from miles away, but of course it was getting larger and larger down in the battery as a a wind picked up the fire and passed the flame from the Fighting Cock's Tavern to the rooftops of its neighbors. Now, normally... 
church bells would have sounded if a fire had been spotted. That was a way of getting everybody out into the streets, waking people up, getting them out to help put out the fire. But there was a problem here. There were no church bells. They'd all been melted down for ammunition. So the city remained quiet and dark, just a crackle, as the fire jumped from the wooden shingle rooftop to rooftop, lighting up the dark streets with its glow. In what direction did the fire start turning? Did it go straight northwards into the city? Did it go along the docks? I mean, we well, have, I have a lot a, of wooden buildings here. I have a map here that you can yeah. see that comes from the New York Public Library's digital collections. And you can see the, the fire zone. It sort of moves straight up toward Broadway and then crossed to the west side of Broadway and really went up almost the entire length of New York at the time west of Broadway. Yeah, I was going to say mostly because of Battery Park City and there's so much landfill that wasn't there at the time. Right. So, so essentially, you have to take yeah. that out in your head. Right. So essentially what's in danger here are those buildings west of Broadway. Right. And along Broadway. And the wind is gusting and forcing the fire to move even faster. So it was spreading north and west, burning powerfully as it jumped onto the west side of Broadway. And there it hit Trinity Church. The side yard of the church stopped the fire from moving south, but the fire itself jumped the gate and lit the church on fire. Where are the firemen? The fire's just like running unabated up the street, up through these buildings here? Well, there were some firemen here and there, but most of the city's trained firemen were nowhere to be found because many had joined the Continental Army. And so they were oh, all right, off. of course. They were all off in the north of the island. This left behind British troops or loyalist firefighters, but mostly British troops and sailors and soldiers who joined in the fight. But many of them, they didn't know the particularities of fighting a fire to begin with, or and especially fighting a fire on Manhattan Island. So Trinity just continues to burn, and they're standing there, and this is, this is the Anglican Church. This is their church, and they're watching. Well, it's the symbol of the British crown. And it's burning right before them. Fire shoots straight up the steeple 140 feet in the air. The highest point of the city is on fire, lighting up the sky in a terrifying tower of fire and smoke. You know that many of the graves that are in the churchyard today, like many of those graves predate 1776. So mm. many of those gravestones were witness to these very events. And the British, again, they were trying to fight the flames, but they found themselves in an unusual uh, spot because it almost seemed like they had been sabotaged. They would reach for buckets only to find that the buckets were missing handles or the handles had been sort of disconnected. They, they tried to pump their water engines only to find that those pumps had been broken. Hmm. And at least a few times, they spotted people racing out of houses as they were catching fire. It seemed perhaps like some of these people weren't spreading the fire. But they may have, they seemed to know the path of the fire or to be preempting it before they got there. Or that they were actively spreading it. In New York at War, he tells the anecdote of a man running out of a house with burning matches in his hands. And according to a story told later, he was grabbed by a British soldier and thrown back into the flames of the burning house. This fire is raging out of control. What about the people who are living in New York? Because now it's actually going into people's homes. Right. Blocks and blocks of people's homes were at risk here. And the residents, for the most part, the good news is that many of them were safe from physical danger. But they stood back helplessly as they watched their homes and their, and their business and their blocks burn to the ground. 
Several hours later, the sun came up on a city that was devastated. Nearly a mile of blocks west of Broadway had burned in just a few quick and brutal hours. 493 buildings, about a quarter of the city, had burned to the ground. And thousands, according to reports at the time, had become homeless overnight. I read a quote from a British soldier who wrote, It is impossible to conceive a scene of more horror and distress. The sick, the aged, the women and children, half naked, were seen going they knew not where and taking refuge in houses which were at a distance from the fire. Unquote. In fact, by daybreak, some of the fire hadn't even yet gone out. It wouldn't be until 9 a.m. that the fire would completely go out once it hits King's College and sort of the empty lots around it yeah. that would put an end to the fire. So the fire basically ended around Tribeca, like the neighborhood of Tribeca today. Meanwhile, we have Washington up in Harlem Heights, who would later write about this fire, because remember, he himself had considered burning mm -hmm. down the city. And he wrote, Providence, or some good honest fellow, has done more for us than we were disposed to do for ourselves. Hmm. Well, many British, of course, thought that Washington had started it. I mean, it would have been incredibly advantageous for him to do so, to create a bunch of chaos, especially since, of course, Washington would eventually be leaving Manhattan. Right. In a letter by British officer William Tryon... He said, quote, many circumstances led to conjecture that Mr. Washington was privy to this villainous act as he sent all the bells of the church out of town under pretense of casting them into cannon. Besides, some officers of his army were found concealed in the city, supposed for this devilish purpose, unquote. Mm. So there was this idea that there were Continental Army spies who were still in the city who had actually... Yeah. started the fire. I mean, on the other hand, this is a wretched thing to do to thousands of New Yorkers who already live here and quite beyond the rules of normal battle. So the, the fire is out on the morning of September 21st, right? On Saturday. Now, the British apprehended up to 200 people for questioning because all with all the suspicion on Washington and his troops, many of them were let go. Many of them, but not Nathan Hale. So on the evening of September 21st, 1776, Hale had indeed secured some secret information. Remember, he was sent on this particular mission. Right. We don't know the details, and we don't know what information he had because he had it on his person. And he was captured by the British. It's safe to say that we will never accurately know the last few moments of Nathan Hale's life. There are so many different accounts of this story. One account says that he was captured in his schoolteacher disguise, if you will, in a tavern in Flushing Bay. I read another account that said he was caught in Huntington, Long Island. Yet another one that said he was captured at a ferry landing here in New York. Well, regardless, he was indeed captured. We've discussed a couple of these fine mansions of New York, these upper Manhattan mansions like Inklenburg and mm -hmm. Morris Hill. Jumel. Yes, and then Mount Morris, Morris Jamel. I'm going to mention another one with a strangely ominous name of Mount Pleasant. Mm -hmm. Mount Pleasant is slightly north of the United Nations headquarters, you know, Beekman Place. It was indeed the house of James Beekman. General William Howe had actually made this his headquarters because it's on a hill. When you go there today to this area, it's on a very high elevation. Nathan Hale was brought to him the following morning, so September 22nd, 
And again, reading very different accounts here, each one slightly different than the other, some say that Nathan's life would have been spared had he been in army uniform because of the rules of engagement, but because he was... Because he would have been a prisoner of war. Yes, but as a civilian, the laws did not quite apply if you were dressed as a a civilian. And indeed, um, when Hale did confess as a spy for Washington's army, that basically sealed his fate. Howe ordered him to be executed that morning. According to a first-hand account by a British soldier, quote, I was present at this interview between Howe and Hale, And I observed that the frankness, the manly bearing, and the evident disinterested patriotism of the handsome young prisoner sensibly touched a tender chord of General Howe's nature, but the stern rules of war concerning such offense would not allow him to exercise even pity, unquote. And so it was that morning that Nathan Hale was hung as a spy, either at a butternut tree on the grounds here of Mount Pleasant or a little further north near a tavern that was called the Dove Tavern. But of course, not before he uttered one of the most famous lines in the history of the Revolutionary War. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. But Nathan Hale was hung for being a spy. For being a spy, yeah. This is not related to to the Great Fire? It's just a big coincidence that this is happening within hours of the fire going out? Well, I mean, he was certainly under suspicion for being one of many to cause the fire. Keep in mind, it wouldn't have been just one instigator. It would have been several people. And if he was working for Washington, and oh, how convenient that he also happens to be you okay. know, around at this time. So it is, in fact, tied with the fire. We don't know exactly what charges are lobbed at him because, of course, being called a spy right. would have been the and, one that, you know, unfortunately sealed his fate. And when the city is traumatized, as it was following this fire, they're looking for anybody who might be responsible for this to blame. Hale was one of hundreds of casualties already on the American side, or the American cause, as we might call it today, but would, of course, be an early casualty in a war that would cause great tragedy and grief. The battle was, of course, eventually won by Washington and the Continental Army, thanks to some friends from overseas. Right, I think that France and uh, Spain gave us some help, among others. Mm -hmm. Let's flash forward to November 25th, 1783, which we would call evacuation day in the city and would celebrate for many years. That would be the day that the city greeted Washington on his arrival and would say goodbye to the British as they would leave the harbor forever. But the city still bore these very deep scars of the Great Fire of 1776. Even seven years later, there would be some evidence of this fire. Trinity Church actually continued to sit in ruins until it was finally rebuilt in 1790. However, when Washington did ride down into the city... There was one building that did greet him, and that was relatively unharmed by the fire, and that was the church that is north of Trinity Church, and that would be St. Paul's Chapel. You had mentioned when you teased us before the advertisement that in that long list of uh, buildings... Francis Tavern and Federal Hall, and yes. And all of those escaped terrible damage in the fire, Yes, except, of course, for Trinity Church, which burned... So St. Paul's Chapel, which is younger than Trinity Church and had been built just 10 years before this great fire and sits north of Trinity on Broadway, 
survived the fire that was raging just west of it, just on the other side of its gated churchyard, because of the efforts of some bucket brigades that were throwing water on the fire and keeping the fire at bay away from St. Paul's Chapel. Amazingly, St. Paul's would open up its doors the next day, the day after the Great Fire of 1776, on Sunday, September 22nd, 1776. And a sermon would be preached there by the Reverend O'Bairn, who was returning to his post. Now, St. Paul's had been closed. Well, because of weeks of battle and fear of battle. But can you imagine sitting inside that church? You know that church. Yes. Imagine going to church that Sunday. Reverend O'Baron had been anticipating that he'd be delivering a sermon about the retreat of the rebel forces, right? And about the superiority of the British forces and of the great king, the power of the British throne. This was, this was supposed to be this great, majestic moment for him to oh, come they, back right, in. Right. They were very pro-British, weren't well, they? Well, yeah. yes, he was, he was assigned by the crown to be the chaplain at this church. So, of course, he closed his sermons with a prayer for the king— we're so used to thinking about this story, about the story of the revolution in New York City from the perspective of the Americans. Sure. For good reason. We're Americans, <laughs> right? But and, and, and we, quote unquote, won this war in the end. But there were a lot of people who were here who saw New York as a legitimate British colony who were faithful to the king, loyal to the crown, and didn't think that they had really done anything wrong. And they had suffered years of attacks from the, the quote-unquote rebels who were stoking the fires of revolutionary war. So, yeah, I think putting up is a good way to describe this because, you know, there's a lot of people who just don't want to rock the boat, right? right. And so they finally... Those rabble-rousers have escaped the city. So here we are on Sunday. We're, we're with the other faithful who had anticipated going back to church, but instead witnessed a terrible tragedy when they woke up on Saturday morning. This was the next day in church. Amazingly, there is a copy from 1776 of the sermon that he delivered at the New York Public Library. Did you see it I was for your able, own eyes? I was wow. able to handle it. Uh, today in the Rare Books Collection... It's amazing to to read this, uh, to turn these actual pages from 1776, and try to understand another perspective on this entire story, if you'll permit me just to read a little bit from the well, sermon. Well, now you have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, Preach it. The Reverend O'Baron said, "'Who that was witness of the cruel and disastrous deed of the night before last could promise himself that you should be assembled this day in the house of God to praise him for your wonderful deliverance?' Who could have hoped that this temple would remain a monument of the returning favor of heaven amidst the horror of the ruins through which you must have passed to approach it? Which of you could have said to himself that he should see these doors opened once more for the reception of the faithful? That's chilling, not only because of the events that he is describing and that they've lived through, but of course, events that they could not possibly know that were going to happen in that neighborhood 225 years later. Right. When after the attacks on the World Trade Center, just west of St. Paul's Chapel, just outside those same gates, uh, when a shocked and grieving city would find solace once again inside St. Paul's Chapel. And it wouldn't just be grieving parishioners coming back. It would also be firemen who would set up uh, a sort of base there and a resting area there and where people could tend to their needs as well. This building 
This structure, this church, St. Paul's Chapel, is an incredible reminder of survival of the city, right? Not only did it survive the Great Fire of 1776, but it was such an important place for people in the days after September 11th, 2001. The building today, when you visit it, it embodies this certain old colonial style, of course, because I mean, George Washington would worship there when he became president of the United States. Um, it embodies an early New York. It certainly embodies the tenacity of the people who saved the building. And it serves as a symbol of perseverance in, of course, those days following 9-11. I would say, to be quite not to be overdramatic, but I think that St. Paul's Chapel is one of the greatest historic landmarks of New York City. And I just finally have to add that after you visit St. Paul's Chapel, you can just take a very short walk about a block north into City Hall Park. And you can't go all the way in towards City Hall, but you can get far enough to see that there is one statue that is there today that is facing into City Hall. One inspiring image. And that, of course, is an image of Nathan Hale. A statue worth visiting in person or online will have photos of the statue of Nathan Hale and so many more things images relating to the fire of 1776 and the revolution in New York on our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. If you'd like to listen to more on the subject, we recorded years ago a two-part series about life in British New York uh, that deals with the Revolutionary War and also what it was like to live in the British-occupied colony during the war. Yeah, check those out. Those are on our archive feed, Bowery Boys Archive, found in the same place that you found this show. Also on the blog post, uh, we'll have some photos of that sermon that I mentioned. Yes. Uh, thank you very much to the friendly folks at the Rare Books Room at the New York Public Library, room 328. Right. And Tom will actually have more excerpts uh, from that particular sermon for our Patreon members. And so if you'd like to join in and get this extra material, please go to patreon.com slash Boys and become one of our supporters. We'd like to thank all of the uh, patrons who have joined already. And if you are one of those patrons, be sure to log in because we uploaded a recording of the live show that Greg and I did two weeks ago at 54 Below, the cabaret space underneath uh, Studio 54 with our friends at the Ensemblist podcast in celebration of the St. James Theater. It was a really fun show, and uh, we hope that you'll enjoy listening to that recording. So we have that on Patreon for our supporters. Thanks again. As always, you can check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, where I'll start following along with the TV show The Nick this month. We're now entering October with the season two premiere of that New York history TV show set in the medical world of the early 20th century. So exciting. You're going to be live tweeting, I take it? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, find us on Instagram, where you'll be able to follow along as we finish up the first ever Bowery Boys book. We're kind of like we've turned one of the final corners where we see a finish line. (laughs) It's very far away still, but we kind of see it. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. 
Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed in your Keurig, coffee maker, and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's Cold K-Cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.